this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, David Brazier. Thank you for being on the show, David. We are thrilled you're joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm really honored to be here. Excellent. So this episode, and really throughout this month, we're focused on growth, growth in ourselves, in our schools, um, for our staff, students, leaders, all the way around. And we could not think of anyone better to have this conversation than with you, David. So TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more? Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. David Brazer is Principal Consultant at Brazer Education Consulting formerly Associate Professor and Director of Leadership Degree Programs in the Stanford University Graduate School of Education, by the way, where he earned his PhD. Brazer continues to design courses and teach in the Stanford Ed Leaders with a capital L-E-A-D online professional development program for executive level education leaders. Brazier's theory, development, and empirical research on strategic decision-making, leadership, teacher teacher learning, and organizational design have appeared in numerous peer-reviewed journals and edited volumes. He's the lead author of Leading Schools to Learn, Grow, and Thrive, Using Theory to Strengthen Practice, which we're going to talk a bit about today, and that was with Scott Bauer Bob and Bob Johnson, and then he also published with Robert Smith, a book called Striving for Equity, District Leadership for Narrowing Opportunity and Achievement Gaps. And then again with Scott C. Bauer, Using Research to Lead School Improvement, Turning Evidence into Action. I'm sure we're going to dive into a couple of those topics in this conversation. David, we want to get into leadership, of course, as always. But like Joe said, growth in schools. Specifically, what we want to learn from you is how leaders can support, can think about, you know, teacher leaders, administrators, this concept of fostering an environment for their own growth and the growth of others within a school or district setting. And you and I have had hours of conversations about learning culture, and I, I hope to, to bring that up in this interview today. Well, I'm maybe a little too cute by half when I say that uh, learning leaders lead learning. And what I mean by that is that a leader who, whether it's a teacher or administrator, a leader who is open-minded and engaged in inquiry has credibility and models well for others whom she or he wants to be open-minded and engaged in inquiry. So the way that works in practice is that if I'm a principal who asks open-ended questions, such as um, how do we know our students are learning what we want them to, what we want them to learn? Um, that helps to make me vulnerable and establish uh, something of a model for doing that. Um, but it also gives me credibility when I ask teachers to ask the same questions. If I'm asking those questions of them, 
I need to be open-minded to whatever the answers might be. Um, and so I, I believe that growth happens when a critical mass of people are engaged in trying to learn about teaching and learning as they do the work. Uh, but there's an element that often gets dropped. Um, sometimes we really enjoy the conversation, we enjoy learning new things, and we do the same old things. So I've always been about learning for action. I'm learning something new, I wanna put it into action, and then I wanna look at the results and keep acting. David, let me ask you, because it seems so simple, but you said two things that I, in my tenure in education now, believe people struggle with. And, and one is asking good questions and two, putting things into action. So it seems rather simple um, to really go and do those two things, but do you have any advice or suggestions on one, how to ask a better question to get a better answer, but then also to just put things in action, as you state. The way I look at that problem is that so often people understand a problem. Um, for example, my, one of my favorite problems in all of education is Algebra 1. There's always a high proportion of D and F grades in Algebra 1. Everywhere I've been, anyone I've spoken to. They say, all right, well, we have a DNF rate of 30 to 40%. Then they jump immediately to a solution. And they'll say, so we should slow algebra down for those kids who are getting Ds and Fs. Let's do it in two years instead of one year, because it's really broad curriculum. Or they'll say, well, what we need to do is to get kids into a pre-algebra program that gets them ready for algebra better than they were prepared before ninth grade or whenever algebra hits. Both of those solutions say nothing about the reasons why kids struggle in Algebra 1. And what they end up doing is they end up doing more of the same old things slower, or they end up drilling kids on stuff they should have learned, and they get the same result because they haven't dealt with the root cause. So I think that the questions that need to be asked, simply put, are why. Now, I want to be careful. I don't mean the Simon, Simon Sinek version of why, as in in terms of purpose. What I mean is, why is this happening this way? When I engaged my math teachers, as, when I was a principal, when I engaged the math department in this kind of conversation, I kept asking them, why don't kids do their homework? Why don't kids remember algebra once they get to calculus? Why, why don't kids know how to uh, multiply both sides by three over one or whatever the, the procedure is? And what we uncovered in that series of why questions was uh, kids don't really know what fractions are. Um, or a different version of that would be that students haven't mastered basic operations with fractions and decimals. And so to try to, to engage in operations in algebra that don't even have numbers in them is virtually impossible for them. Um, then, so that's, those are the kinds of questions that I believe, Joe, really need to get asked over and over again until you've identified the root causes of the problem that you're trying to address. But from there, to go to action requires specific action planning. And whatever you plan as a behavior needs to be linked back to the root causes you identified. So if you're going to tell me, as one math teacher did, that you're going to reteach the quadratic formula four times, 
I'm going to say I, that doesn't address the root cause of kids not understanding fractions. You're just repeating the same thing over and over again. So I have an accountability mechanism, so to speak, when I've got the root causes in place, because I can always ask you, how does your solution link to the root cause? But don't take an action unless it's addressing those root causes. But once you've figured that out, take the action. Do it, even if it's uncomfortable. Just to say a little bit more about that, I think what leaders need to do then is to understand their support role. Because every time someone tries to do something that they haven't done before, it's going to come out worse than what they're used to doing. But that's just the beginning. That's the, that's the beginning of the learning. Okay, that didn't quite come out the way I wanted. So how do I fix that? I'd like to I'd like to pick that up a little bit from there, David, and ask a couple of more questions about, you know, this concept of growth in schools and learning and what you just described in the mess of people trying something new, getting out of their comfort zone and it not working. Because I I really think that that that's the place where people don't want to be is messing around with something they don't know how to do and not doing it very well, especially when there's 32 kids sitting in front of you, in front of you. And I also don't think there's a way to go about school improvement and doing things differently and making change without that. So you said the leader needs to be supportive. How? How, what would you say to a new leader or a leader listening today who says, I want this growth culture thing, and I know people have to start taking risks and messing stuff up, but my people don't want to mess stuff up. What they're doing isn't working, but at least they're not messing it up. And you have to ask why. Why are they so worried about messing up? What's going on? And, and what... Um, what causes them to act out in some way that you don't want? Um, my answer to that is, in most cases, it's stress. You just named the fundamental stressor. I'm facing 32 kids. I got 50 minutes or 90 minutes that we're stuck with each other, and I don't want this lesson to bomb. Um, and when I try something and it bombs, now I've got a very high stress level. What um, Carl White demonstrates, I think, quite beautifully is that when people are under stress, they perform poorly. They perform at a lower level than what they're capable of. And not only that, they revert to old routines, even though they know those routines don't work. Because what they're trying to do, not at that moment, what they're trying to do is minimize stress, not succeed. Those are two different kinds of things. So when you ask, what can a leader do? First of all, you've got to understand that when you're asking people to change, you're putting them under greater stress and their performance will go down. Um, the next piece that needs to be examined is motivation. And when I think about motivation, I, I turn to Frederick Hertzberg, a researcher who did his most famous work actually in the late 50s and early 60s. And what's unique about Hertzberg is that he doesn't start with Maslow's hierarchy. He starts with something completely different, which he called hygiene factors or demotivators. These demotivators are things like unrealistic expectations from my boss. Um, my, my classroom isn't heated or air conditioned properly. Um, kids don't come to school on a regular basis. All of those kinds of things make me feel 
helpless in some regard. And so I don't feel as though you, you can't talk to me about self-actualization when I feel bad about the circumstances that I'm in. So the leader's job is to minimize those demotivators first and foremost. Um, and, and if I go very specifically to the kind of scenario that we're spinning out, it means reassuring teachers that if you mess up, nobody's gonna come down on you. In fact, we're gonna congratulate you for messing up because it shows that you tried something different. Now that's gonna help with, with lowering stress and reducing those factors that inhibit my motivation. At the same time, as I'm doing that, I can say to my folks, if we can elevate student voice so that kids feel as though they are really engaged in their education and they have a role to play and that this is helping them for their future, if we can get to that, that's the magic of education. That's our self-actualization. So the kinds of things that we're working on is we're trying to make school better for kids. And if we can succeed in that, then school is going to be better for all of us. David, if I may, this whole notion of risk-taking definitely speaks to having the right culture in place to achieve that, getting to a point of self-actualization. When you were talking, it actually even made me think of not only are the stresses then um, on, you know, on a high alert for teachers, that rush of 32 kids in a classroom, 50 minutes, that's also affects kids. Now that we're starting, to, you know, we're, we're in May, we're entering the summer, it's really just pressing on my mind. What are some steps that, you know, some school leaders should take maybe even this summer to set that right culture? Because there's the pressures of performance are always going to be there. They're probably going to be higher now than ever after COVID. And as we talk about learning loss and some other things, people are, are going to say we have to get our students on track. We're hearing that more and more and more. Um, do you have some practical suggestions? Just I'm thinking, you know, as we go into this summer to build this culture, to not let some of those outside forces, you know, get in the way, if you will, of creating that culture of risk taking of where we can get to a point of self-actualization. My approach would be, if I, if I ran the world, I would say, let's acknowledge the effects of COVID on education, but let's not dwell there. We can't get that back. There's no point in perseverating on it. And if we insist on trying to catch up, trying to go faster, we'll just recommit all the most horrible errors of algebra one and everything across the curriculum because we're gonna be trying to do more in a shorter period of time, we'll leave more kids behind, it'll be less equitable, all of those kinds of things are gonna happen. So we understand that COVID has had an impact. Now, given that that's who our students are, let's spend this summer dreaming about what they could be. And, and the folks in Epiquinamink are really well situated to, to do this kind of dreaming because you have your, clearly articulated 10 principles of instruction that principals and uh, teachers are starting to work with. And so my school has a focus on two or three principles of instruction. Now, how do we make that an adventure in the classroom for kids so that they're so deeply engaged that they won't wanna look at their phones, that they won't want to miss class and all of those kinds of things. Let's really be naive and, and dream big. 
But, but having said that, I think that school and district leaders need to recognize and be explicit about if you're going to achieve those dreams, we're all going to have to take risks. And so we need an agreement that we're not going to slam one another for taking risks, that we have a risk tolerance that we can, that we can identify. Um, and you know, some pieces of that would be that we're not going to do anything that makes kids unsafe, we're not going to waste time, those kinds of things. But inside this, this sort of sandbox of risk tolerance, we're really going to do our best to be creative and to learn from, from what we're trying to accomplish. Um, the world is different and we need to be different in response to it. And we don't know at this moment exactly what that looks like, but we're never gonna find out unless we try things, experiment, evaluate, reinforce what seems to work and let go of what doesn't seem to work. David, can you talk a little bit about learning at the school setting or in the district setting as a way of developing yourself and others? And I would, I, because, I mean, this is work that you do, you know, in terms of building a culture where principals are dumping into themselves, but they're also building learning for teachers. What are some of the elements of that that are working in, in places where you're like, look, our teachers here are hungry, our administrators here are building, and like maybe, and this sounds like a convoluted question, but maybe even this concept of case studies and simulations and getting people to talk about their own experiences in a way that's self-development, because I think you do that well. Do you mind, you know, hitting on that a little bit for us? Let me try it in two ways. Um, first, uh, starting from practice. Um, actually, going back a little bit, few steps back from that, I start from Dewey. I agree with Dewey that learning is social, that, that knowledge is socially constructed. Um, yes, there are things you can learn by yourself, but you, you reinforce them, you understand them more deeply when you talk about them with people. So on a practical basis, I think it's important for principals, for example, to spend a lot of time in meetings. Now, I got criticized for this. Um, I got criticized for spending too much time in meetings because I met with my administrative team twice a week. I met with them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I met with department chairs every other week and so on. But every meeting I had was a learning experience. Um, I may not have agreed with what people were saying to me, but I was learning what their life was like in school. I was learning how they were responding to where I thought we were trying to go. And that helped me understand how to lead. Now, yes, I have to be visible on campus as a principal. There are multiple demands, but if you don't give yourself time to learn in a, in a social way, then you're not going to be able to do anything but reinforce routines. I believe that in my heart of hearts. I think that when, when you refer to uh, professional development, such as what we've been engaged with together with a few schools in Apoquinamie, um, I think there are two or three fundamental elements to that kind of learning through professional development. One is being introduced to novel ideas, something you hadn't seen before as a stimulus 
Number two is relating those novel ideas to what you're seeing in your job. So that we're never just all about theory or all about practice. That you have to be about both and. Um, and you know that when we, when we introduce some concepts that we sent the administrators and coaches back to their schools in the intervening five or six weeks to, to work with those, to find out you know, what's your area, for example, what's your area of the least amount of content knowledge? And what are you gonna do about it? Go talk to somebody who has more content knowledge in that area than you do. And so um, the third piece is, I believe that people need a place to try out new ideas as related to their practice without fear of criticism, without fear of evaluation, without fear of failure. So we put a lot of energy into creating um, in personalized, individualized simulations for each of the three schools we worked with, which used real data from their schools um, so that they could practice being principal, assistant principal, or coach um, in a simulated setting and then get feedback on what they did. So it's marrying theory, research, and practice together in a setting where I'm with friends and I can try things and I can understand how my trials were received by, by others. David, we've heard you resoundingly on this risk-free environment to learn, to try things. Um, I don't think we could agree with you more. Um, there has to be that safe place where people can really grow and learn. We try to create that for our students. There's no reason why we shouldn't um, do the same for our teachers. So thank you for that. Um, I think that is something we can definitely take away. Shifting gears a little bit, you've mentioned Dewey. Um, it's funny, we just did a article on Dewey not too long ago. We're big fans, kind of reaching back and saying, listen, you know, there, there was a lot of goodness um, that was shared a long time ago, and let's not forget it. So Dewey was one of them. Um, you mentioned uh, the dissatisfier with Hertzberg, also very powerful. Is there you know, another group or person who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration um, and where could we find them? Absolutely. Uh, the first person I would point to is Larry Cuban. Um, Larry Cuban was my uh, advisor at Stanford. Uh, he's become a good friend. So we've, we've known each other for nearly 40 years. Um, but his career begins way earlier than that. He started teaching in the Cleveland public schools in the mid 1950s. Um, and he was teaching classes of predominantly uh, black students, teaching social studies. And the social studies textbooks had no references to any black authors, any black historians, almost anything black. I mean, there was only reference to uh, slavery and then we moved on to the Civil War. So what Larry did long before anybody coined terms like social justice or even equity or any of that was that he pulled together original sources by black authors about black history and black life. And he compiled those into a book that originally was titled uh, The Negro in the Making of the, the Negro in America. And it came out in a second edition as The Black Man in America. Um, 
but it's a, it's a compendium of original sources that he used with his students to, to kind of get them to question uh, what was going on around them and what their history was like. And he also used those sources as a means of engagement. Um, the funny thing in, in my life, if you don't mind a, a little footnote here, is that I first encountered Larry Cuban when I was 16 and in my US history class, and my teacher assigned the black man in America. Um, and I loved it because I was, a hist I was a history geek and I ended up teaching history and I used it when I taught history. And then when I arrived at Stanford and I was assigned to Larry Cuban as my advisor, I thought, you know, man, there really is karma. Um, but to, to, on a more serious note, um, what Larry has been doing um, in his retirement is writing a twice weekly blog. And I, I gave TJ the uh, URL for the blog. It's called uh, 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 Larry Cuban on School Reform and Teaching Practice, I think. Um, but he, he drafts a lot of his books um, through his blog posts. He invites guest bloggers and so on. And there's just so much wisdom there about so many different things. His research has largely been on how teachers have taught over the decades. Um, also, he's done a lot of research in how teachers use technology. Uh, but I find the best posts are the ones about leadership. And ironically, the one today is about great principles. And what I like about reading Larry's work is that he has this way of organizing information and sometimes surprising you. So he, he dichotomizes good principles from successful principles and discusses that. And I, I think it's a wonderful distinction because I know in my career, and you've probably encountered this, there are a lot of principles who are revered because they're attractive people, but they're not necessarily effective principles. And so you have to start from the question of what are we trying to accomplish? What does success look like? And where I would start is to say, can this person lead instruction to get better? I don't care how personable you are, but if you can't lead instruction, you're just not a great principle in my view. That's awesome. And we'll link that. We agree with that, by the way, uh, at the Schoolhouse 302 in terms of effectiveness and the principalship and leading instruction. Um, and I, we will link to Larry's work um, and just a few titles here, Teaching History Then and Now, From the Ivory Tower to the Schoolhouse. Um, and this one I'm going to pick up that's a 2020 publication, which is Chasing Success and Confronting Failure in American Public Schools. So those all sound very interesting. David, thank you for introducing us I, to I have there. To, I have to comment on my favorite, though. The one that I've actually used time and time again in graduate classes is um, The Managerial Imperative and the Practice of Leadership in Schools. And that was published back in 88. Um, that book is magnificent and, and it's, it's all wrapped up in the title, the managerial imperative, we're, in, we're impelled to manage all the time. And his thesis is that that has crowded out leadership uh, for many principles. And it's more complicated than that, but it's anyone who aspires to the principalship, whether it's gonna happen in next year, five years, 20 years, needs to read that book. 
Well, David, you, every time we talk, I end up with a stack of books that I need to read. So I appreciate that about you. And uh, we'll link to those in the, the show notes. Um, I'm going to ask this next question that we always ask our guests. What's the one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? Well, I think I already blew the punchline on that one. I, I named it before. Um, I'll, I'll make it real simple. Talk to people. Talk to people and learn from them. Um, I tried to do that in settings with different groups of people so that, um, so that I was always fresh and always had my finger on the pulse. Other people might handle it differently, might be more serendipitous, uh, uh, meeting people in the hallway or whatever that may be. I, I think that um, there's a choice to be made. Sometimes when we don't have um, a structure, like my administrative team meetings, my one-on-ones, my department chair meetings, if those structures aren't robust, we just end up responding to whatever is happening in the moment without being mindful or thoughtful about how we're learning and growing. Um, so I, I think, I think it, always engaging in the social construction of knowledge is the one thing that you need to do in order to be effective. Thank you, David. Truly love that answer and what it means, I think even in 2022 about just being appreciative of, you know, people and what you could truly learn just by being curious and listening and um, in many ways, uh, non-judgmental. And so I, I think that's just a crazy way that people can learn every day without even really trying um, just a, a few different behavioral mods that need to go in place. If you have had this, uh, storied career we we discussed a little bit in your bio you know from you know being in in the classroom in administration to stanford you know principal consultant now looking down the road um you know what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already i have a hard time balancing my passion with inquiry and the consequence of that imbalance at times is that people find me arrogant or pushy or you know, fill in your own uh, pejorative comment. Um, so I want to get better at asking questions first before I release my passionate response. And also considering the answers to those questions first so that I'm talking directly to people. There's a, I'm going to give you another book title if you don't mind, um, but we, we used a chapter out of Vivian Robinson's book, uh, Student-Centered Leadership. And one of the most important pieces of wisdom I got from that book was the difference between what she calls bypass and engagement. So most, and this, this is important to fostering learning. Most conversations that go on between people, particularly between administrators and teachers are examples of bypass. You make your point, I make my point, you try to prove you're right and I'm wrong, I try to prove I'm right and you're wrong, and we leave the room with nothing. But she says that when, when you engage, and her method of engagement is to go to the person's theory of action, then you are more likely to get somewhere. So the way that looks to me is that I say, 
Uh, I'm going to use a quote from an Apoquinamink teacher, if that's okay. Um, when you say to me that you know that you talk too much and you don't need anybody to tell you that, I'm going to ask the question, well, why is it that you talk too much? What does that mean? What's too much and why do you do it? So what I'm trying to do in that before I say, well, you shouldn't talk so much. You should let the kids talk. I, I want to find out, first of all, what's the theory of action at play in your classroom that leads you to that conclusion? Then I can work with you on your theory of action, and maybe I can invalidate parts of it as a way of helping you to think differently, as, to, as opposed to just saying, well, you shouldn't talk so much, so I want, I want to see you get your talk down and your student talk up. That's not going to work for most people. Well, David, I'll work on that with you because uh, I think I respond with a passionate uh, response. And Joe and I wrote a book called Passionate Leadership. So it's hard not to um, respond passionately, especially when you're read up on scenarios and you know what the research says and you want to help people change and you want to help people grow. But that only works if you know their motivations and their theory of action. So thanks for the reminder. And I know I'll be working on that uh, with you. David, you have an awesome career. And I, I've, I've talked to you about this before. Like you work as a consultant, you've worked in education, you've worked as a principal, you've been a teacher, you um, have a PhD from Stanford, you work there in their leadership development programming. Um, I, I wonder how you stay fresh and how you continue to grow as a leader. And so what's one thing that has led to or continues to support your growth as a leader that others might listen today and say, I can do that too. The simple answer to that is I get stimulated when I read. Um, but I know it's important to be careful what I read and to read critically. So given limited time, I actually choose to read more books than articles. And the reason that I do that is that I find they're written for different reasons. Uh, academic journal articles um, are, they're certainly written for discovery, but they're also written as a way of um, enhancing the researcher's resume. And so they, they don't always serve the need of communicating in a way that's valuable to the practitioner. But books, liberate writers from the peer review process, um, which is both a good and a bad thing. So for the good books, like some of the ones that we've named, they're, they're grounded in research, but they spin out complex ideas over a long narrative that helps you understand in a deeper way um, what the author is trying to, to get across. So let me use Vivian Robinson as an example. She, with two other colleagues, wrote a landmark uh, journal article in Educational, um, Educational Administration Quarterly in 2008. Um, I can't recall exactly the title of it. I should have prepared for that. But um, what they did was they, they collected um, a number of studies that had looked at the connection between school leadership and student outcomes, achievement test scores, essentially. And they engaged in a really interesting meta-analysis of um, which leadership behaviors appeared to have the greatest effect on test scores. 
Now, there are all kinds of methodological problems with doing that, um, even though they did a really good job with it. Um, but the article is very dense and difficult to read because they're trying to resolve all these methodological issues. What she did in her book, Student-Centered Leadership, was she used that research to make it practical because she was freed from the need to demonstrate to anonymous reviewers that her research was sound. She'd already done that with the article. So the book is actually more engaging in many ways, even though it's a lot longer than the article itself. Um, so in, in so if somebody asked me, I want you to put together a leadership library for me, it would always consist of these um, longer form narratives that are grounded in sound research and that are written in a way that anybody can understand. And, and that's why I respect Larry's writing so much because he synthesizes his own original research. He builds on the research of other education historians um, and he writes his narrative in a very engaging way. David, if I, if I may, I, I'm thinking here, and this is just a, a little off the beaten path a little bit. Um, do you listen to books on like audio, like Audible and some others? Do you find value in that or do you steer away and you still need the hardback in your hand? I pretty much need the, the book in my hand because um, I'm a addicted note taker. Uh, and I, I, I read slowly because I process kind of slowly. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. The reason that I'm slow is that I'm relating what I'm reading to my experiences and to the things that I'm interested in writing and, and all kinds of things like that. So I've tried to speed myself up a little bit in recent years by instead of taking notes all the time, using um, little sticky tags on pages um, so that I can get back to the sort of the nuggets that I want to recall. But that's still a work in progress. No, I appreciate that and appreciate the transparency because we've discussed that. Like I said, it's a little off the beaten path, but for our listeners, you know, most of them are avid readers. We feature books all the time. You've mentioned a ton and I, TJ and I were talking one time and TJ can chime in as well. Like this whole notion that consumption somehow equals better leadership or an improved person. And I, I fight that because you'll hear like, oh, CEOs read, um, you know, 60 books a year and, and things of that nature. And, and I've always saw that almost like a marketing ploy or a trap. So I'm actually refreshed and, and glad to hear you say, no, I'm processing, I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm really learning from what I'm reading um, beyond just the, the artificial comprehension of what's on the page. So I appreciate that. I'm going to say something else about that, though, is that um, I first met Scott Bauer in 2004, and I credit him with turning my academic life around. And he and I have written quite a bit together over the years. And he's, uh, he's now at the University of Denver, University of Colorado in Denver. Um, and we haven't seen each other much since 2013. But we talk every two weeks on Zoom. And we talk about what we're reading. We talk about what we're thinking. And I can never let go of that idea that I, I've got to have somebody I can talk it out with, or it, it kind of disappears on me, or maybe I've misinterpreted things. And um, he and I are just really excellent thought partners in that regard. 
that's a, an incredible teachable moment just there though, too, uh, as I heard you and our listeners, you know, that's the, uh, exactly the adventure that you were talking about earlier that you want to create that I want to discuss this book. I want to talk about this with my, my peers in some format, um, and get them thinking, which builds even greater curiosity. So, well, thank you for going down that road. I think it's always fun, entertaining. Um, and that's how TJ and I got started as well. I mean, we kind of had a, a, a rule. Now we love to run and this started on the trails of White Clay Creek. We're, we're blessed to have wonderful trails by where we live. But our kind of rule was we had to talk about work. We both enjoyed it, but it wasn't venting. It really was about, listen, I'm facing this as a principle. We're battling this issue. What do you think? And it wasn't like that was something taboo. And like, this is the lunch table. You certainly can't talk about work at the lunch table. And so we had just the opposite. And, you know, we've grown since then, but we found it to be cathartic and really created the Schoolhouse 302 from that, from like what you just described with Scott and just having meaningful conversations. So with that, David, our last question, what's one thing you used to think that you don't think anymore? I love that question. Um, and I hope you won't mind if I give you a little bit of a convoluted answer. When I started out as an assistant principal, I was 29 years old and felt like I didn't know anything. Um, I had been through a PhD program, most of the way I was still working on my dissertation. Um, and so I had a lot of great theory and research running around in my head. Um, the people who were at Stanford in the 1980s were just amazing. Um, but I'd only taught three and a half years. And I'd only taught in independent Catholic schools. Um, and here I was in a comprehensive high school, highly diverse, um, socioeconomically, ethnically, everything else. And so I was searching for, you know, what are the rules of thumb that I need to follow in order to do a good job here? What do I do when I answer the phone? How do I work with my uh, part-time secretary who's also the data entry clerk? Um, just like, how do I do this? How do I do that? What I learned was that, well, what I thought at that time to answer your question directly was that there, were, there, were, there was a set, a known set of rules of thumb that were gonna make me an effective administrator. Um, I have, I, after one year, I abandoned that idea. And the reason was I found that the rules of thumb didn't work. Um, I'll give you my favorite examples in this regard come from discipline. So one assistant principal I encountered who was mentoring me said, uh, you know, we were talking about fights. And I said, well, you know, one kid's the aggressor in some way and another kid's a victim, even if they both fought. I said, don't think about that. If you throw a blow, you go. Meaning if you, if you hit somebody, no matter the motivation, um, you're gonna be suspended for at least some period of time. Um, if that's as far as you go in discipline, then you'll, nothing will ever get better. You'll continue to have fights constantly. You'll always be drowning in discipline and things won't, just won't change. So I, I was blessed in my second year with a new assistant principal colleague. And we started to ask ourselves, how do we help kids learn through the discipline that we have to do? Like we have to keep the campus safe. 
and kids are gonna mess up. So how do we turn those into learning experiences? Um, and what that taught me and what I carried forward and what I believe today is that it's not about rules of thumb, it's about principles with a PLE, principles that are effective. And so if you look at discipline as a learning experience, just like the classroom is a learning experience, I found uh, both for myself engaged in discipline and for my mentoring of three brand new assistant principals uh, and working on discipline, that when we made discipline events into learning activities, discipline declined precipitously. You got, it comes back to asking why. One of the things that was extremely annoying is that we were renovating our school when I was principal. We had, through an arduous process, passed a $58 million bond measure. Um, and uh, one of the first steps was renovation of wings of classrooms. Now in California, classroom wings are all outdoors. So there were seven classrooms in an individual pod. We had just finished renovating the first wing and it had fresh paint and it looked beautiful and everything was great. And some kid graffitied the dang thing, you know, within like 48 hours of finishing it. And we were so angry and, and we figured out who it was. And we asked ourselves two questions. One is, why would anybody do that? What motivates a kid to pollute this environment that he goes to every day? And secondly, what can we do about that? Because the answer to the first question was, this was a kid who was very alienated. And so he was, he was saying, I hate you by, by spray painting the new wing. Um, and instead of just saying, well, we need to lock you up because you're you know, a sociopath or whatever you wanna say, we asked ourselves, how can we help you to not hate us? How can we bring you into this community so that you feel a part of it too and you wouldn't want to mess it up just like the student sitting next to you? Uh, so it's, it's really about how do we, you know, in the, in the case of discipline, it's really about how do we treat people, not what rules of thumb do we apply in a given situation? And I think that that carries over into what we've talked about for instructional leadership. It's not about get the test scores up, it's gotta be about um, what do you need on the motivation side? What do you need on the cognitive side to help you be a more effective teacher? And what can I do to, to shepherd you along the way? And, and how can I help you teach others the knowledge that you have? So it's all of those, all of those kinds of things. Always comes back to learning, which is where we started. It's a it's a beautiful answer to that question, David, too. I, I really liked that answer and your analogy with the discipline and the code of conduct and, and what we're trying to do more with restorative practices is um is critical, I think, for for listeners. But the key takeaway for me is like as a leader, it's far better to use principles than to make rules or to think that there are rules that can govern um every single scenario so thank you may for i say that. something about that please do i have another discipline example that makes me chuckle um, when you talk about rules um, we some of the most vivid experiences of working in a high school have to do with social events like dances and discipline and so on those are the things that kind of stand out in your mind or at least for me 
And uh, so I had my relatively new team of uh, assistant principals. They, they were all brand new in my first year. And um, the rule at school was that every dance had a closing time. You could not come in after the closing time. So homecoming was very stressful because we had a parade downtown. We had a football game. Kids went out to dinner and there was a formal dance in the, in the cafeteria, which wasn't the nicest environment, but that's where it was. And, and so the closing time was 9 p.m. But kids were on a really tight schedule with all of that. I mean, to go from a football game to the hairdresser to the dinner to get served, even when waitresses ignore you because you're just a kid, um, and get to the dance by nine o'clock, that was a tough row to hoe. And some kids were late. Um, we had split up the duties, so I was not on duty for the dance. Uh, two other assistant principals were. And at 9:10, a bunch of kids tried to come into the dance, and they said, You can't come in. And they forced them off school grounds. Parents were outraged. They said, you know, my kid paid all this money for the ticket, for the fancy clothes, for the hairdo, all of that stuff. And you, and they're 10 minutes late and said they can't come in. What's the matter with you? And we just got raked over the coals. So after that trauma, we sat in my office and we said, well, why the heck do we close the dance? Um, well, we do that so that we keep kids safe. What? It's not safe for a kid, for a parent to believe that a child went to a dance and we said, you can't come in. We have no idea where they went after that. Well, if we didn't have a, a closing time and kids would show up in the last half an hour. So if that's how they choose to use their dance ticket, then that's up to them. And so through this discussion and with consultation with the student government, we decided that we were no longer going to have a closing time. And by getting rid of that rule, we got rid of a whole lot of headaches. And guess what? Kids came when they wanted to come, and that was usually a couple of hours before the dance ended. So everybody's happy. But when you blindly follow these rules just because, um, then you end up creating a lot more problems than you solve. Yeah, that's is it's a, such an awesome story, and it's so true of probably just about every rule that we do create that confines uh, students and and restrains our thinking about what the experience can be like in schools. And it's a great reminder to to leaders out there to challenge rules versus making making them. Let's let's look at the rules we have before we think about making new ones. David, this has been fantastic. Um, we could probably go on and on. I know just on that last response, uh, I could bring us into a whole other conversation about rules and school and what school is for. Um, and you and I've talked about that at length, but we have to end somewhere. And I think that's a great place to end. And hopefully we can commit to a round two, having you on the show again. Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you wanted to say that you wanted to touch on that you wanted to share with our audience that you'd like to add for listeners today? Well, thank you for that opportunity, but I think your questions have been great and I feel um, completely emptied out. Well, that was our purpose and our motivation for today. Uh, so mission accomplished. There you have it. Another podcast, folks. Don't forget to follow our blog at the schoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. 
We hope that you enjoyed this one thing series on how school leaders can grow for themselves, for others, by creating a growth culture in schools, and so much more with our friend David Grazer. Thank you, David. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep, but you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend ghost bed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews, their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Ghostbed.com.